0: Join with me in a word of prayer. Father, we're going to open your word now, and we thank you for it. We thank you for the privilege of having it. Father, but uh, more than just having it and hearing it, uh, we want to be responsive to it as you lead us by your spirit. And so, Father, we do today pray and take hold of that promise that when you you have said when your word goes out, it will not return to you void. We thank you in advance in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but uh, alarm clocks that have a snooze button feature, the time is usually set to nine minutes. The snooze feature was added back in the 1950s, back when Steve Hott was a mature young man, and uh, by that time, the innards of alarm clocks, which were mechanical, had long been standardized. That meant that the teeth and the gear that affected the snooze button had to mesh with that existing gear uh, configuration, and so in- engineers had really two choices. They could do it for about uh, a nine minutes, or they could do more than ten minutes, a little bit more than ten minutes, but they had reports from those people who knew about such things that allowing people more than ten minutes would let them fall back into a deep sleep. Rather than kind of a snooze period, so the clockmakers settled on the nine-minute gear, believing that people would wake up easier. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes that snooze button at nine minutes is not long enough for me. So I hit it again and again and again, which is really kind of annoying when you think about it. Um, even, in fact, uh, a modern technology like an an iPhone, the snooze feature is set to nine minutes, even though they could set it to any time they wanted. So. People stick with the nine minutes because that's what consumers, you and I, have come to expect. But what is an alarm clock designed to do? It's designed to wake us up. And today we're going to see that the passage we look at in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, is supposed to have that same intended effect. It's supposed to wake us up and wake us up to a very particular thing, and wake us up to our need that each of us have to have a vital connection with Jesus Christ. So I'm going to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. If you're watching on the website, you can go just to the right of the picture, and there's a translation option for you there, or you can pull out your own Bible at home, Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, now by the way, this is not the Sardis that Pastor Gary pastors, that's not that church, this is an ancient church in the ancient world. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits, or maybe sevenfold spirits of God, and the seven stars. I know your deeds, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This call to wake up issued to this church in Sardis is a call that you and I probably need to hear on a regular basis. And remember, of course, now we have been through several churches in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. We've been to Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira. Today we're landing in the church at Sardis. In a couple of weeks we'll do Philadelphia and Laodicea. And when Jesus talks to these churches, he follows this same general pattern, which by now I'm sure you can all repeat after me or verbatim. He gives some information about himself, some really important information about himself. Not the totality of the picture of Jesus, but some key information about himself. He provides for some commendable things to to honor, to emulate, to to follow in obedience. And then there are things to avoid. And a reason why we should avoid those things, having to do with consequences. So, again, we hear, as he talks to the church at Sardis, a little bit more about Jesus in verse 1. He's talked about being the one who has the sevenfold spirits of God. Now, the number seven in the Bible is a very explicit and specific number. The number seven, when it shows up, it means completeness. It means things are ordered the way they're supposed to be. I don't know if you remember when we went through the Gospel of Mark back pre-pandemic days, it seems like a long, long time ago now, we went through the Gospel of Mark, and we heard Jesus respond to His disciples when they asked Him, Hey, Jesus, if somebody offends me, how many times should I forgive them? Three times? And, of course, you know, they thought they were being overly generous, but uh, Jesus says, no, 77 times, or seven times... Seventy times. The number seven means you do it and do it and do it and do it. There's no exhaustible um, limit to it. It's It's an idea of being complete. And so Jesus says he holds the seven spirits of God. This is not seven different spirits. This is a reference to the completeness. And he says he has those, the sevenfold Spirit of God and the seven stars. He's referring here to these seven churches in the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, that we've been talking about. So taken together, what in the world do these things mean? What do these references to seven mean? It means that all of the churches have all of the power, the full range of the divine presence and power of Jesus. It's a reminder of Matthew chapter twenty-eight, verse twenty, when Jesus said, "I am with you always, to the very end of the earth." Back when I lived in Colorado, a member of a local service club, which I will not mention their name today, uh, invited me to join up with them. Just you know, kind of be there. the The deterrent for me was that they met at six thirty in the morning every Monday. Now, when I left the military. I made it a point never to have to be somewhere at 6.30 in the morning. That's when these folks met. And they were nice people doing nice things, which is way better, right, than mean folks getting together to do mean things. But still, here's the thing. Sometimes it feels like we think about the Church as just another service organization. Right? But what makes the Church different? The difference is that the presence of Jesus, this promise to be with us always to the very end of the age, this fullness described in the number seven in Revelation chapter three, verse one, this fullness of Jesus, that's the difference, or at least it's supposed to be the difference. Because listen, if there is no Jesus, there is no church. If Jesus doesn't fully inhabit us as believers personally and fully inhabit us as believers when we gather together, then it ain't church. It's just a bunch of nice people getting together to do some nice stuff. And so this fullness that Jesus talks about, he then turns to his evaluation of this church in Sardis. And we've been using kind of a report card motif over the last couple of weeks, and we're going to con- weeks, and we're going to continue with that a little bit this morning. Because what does the church at Sardis get on their report card? They get an incomplete. They get an I. As a college and seminary professor, I've had the occasion to issue incompletes. And what does that mean when you get an incomplete on your report card, your grade report? What does it mean? Just what it says: all the work's not done. Now, this church at Sardis is a busy place. They have, in verse 1, a reputation of being alive. But they're dead. I've been part of churches like that. I have experienced churches like that. A particular church back in New England, not one that I pastored, but I was part of, was a busy place. It was a hustling and bustling place. You couldn't go there during any business day during the week, any day on the weekend from 8 in the morning to 9 or 10 at night, there was always something going on there. The place was hopping. And for a couple of different periods of time, this church was gracious enough to host another couple of churches in town. One was an Orthodox church whose building had burned down, and so that church was there, the Orthodox church was there. And then just to make things even more fun, a Lutheran church, as a result of a, you know, congregational split in town launched another group that was meeting together. So for a while there, there was this church I was at. The Orthodox Church was there. There was a Lutheran congregation there. This place was hopping. It was busy, but it, it had the appearance, appearance of being alive. But the appearance of being alive does not mean the place was really alive. And that's what's true here for this church in Sardis. Things were hustling and bustling. And they had a reputation of being alive. But Jesus says to them, you are dead. Wow. The old comments section on the report card. Can you imagine? They got it incomplete. And the comments, you are dead. Yikes. So in a way, right, in a way, this church is is, has the appearance of what I'm going to call this morning spiritual zombies. Now, I am not a fan of zombie movies or TV shows or anything to do with that genre. I think Pastor Vaughn and I have seen one zombie movie, World War Z, I think we saw, because it had Brad Pitt in it. <laughs> but you know about zombies, right? They look like they're alive. They're moving around and they're doing things that might be considered life-like, but on closer inspection, they are really dead. And how do we know this church here in Sardis looked like it was alive, but it was dead? Because in verse 2, Jesus said their deeds were not complete. They were graded incomplete, because what was missing, what was missing was the core of a loving and vital relationship with Christ that's supposed to animate everything we do as Christians. Complete here, complete here, is not, is not, is not, working our way towards some perfect score. Complete here is not packing our resume full of really important and, and, and helpful things even. Complete here means action driven by a loving relationship with Jesus that he can use in a perfect way. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in a few minutes. So what does this all point out? It points out that the church at Sardis back in the day had fallen into the performance trap. Now, I've been doing this pastor thing for a couple years now. And I can honestly tell you that I, from time to time, have fallen into this trap. And I have come across many people who will name the name of Jesus, but who are really just trying to bolster their resumes. Thinking that, mistakenly thinking that, the more good stuff we do, the better God will like us. And the more good stuff we do, we have the opportunity to kind of earn our way, resume our way, perform our way into the presence of Father, Son, and Spirit. This church had fallen into this performance trap. Now, hear me carefully. Nothing in this passage and nothing scripturally in the message of Jesus says we shouldn't do anything. The book of James says, Faith without works is dead. But the precedent to the works, the preceding requirement for the works, is faith in Jesus, believing in Jesus. And this church at Sardis, and sometimes I am, and I suspect sometimes you are too, is desperately in need of regaining their footing with Christ. And so Jesus here is not subtle about this at all. Verse 2, he says, wake up. Get up. It's setting the alarm clock in the other room so that when it goes off, you have to get up out of bed and go turn it off so that you are up. Jesus says, man, wake up. And then later in verse 2, he says, strengthen what remains. Go back to the foundation upon which you built this idea that you call Christianity or this idea you call being in church Remember, in verse 3, remember what you received and heard, obey and repent. Now, Jesus has said lots of things that are recorded for us in the Gospels. And he said some things that aren't recorded for us in the, in the Gospels. In fact, the Apostle John, when he writes his Gospels, says, if we wrote down everything that Jesus said and did, there wouldn't be books enough in the universe to hold it. But there are many things that he said, and perhaps most pertinent to this morning is what, again, John recorded in John chapter 15, verse 5. He said this, recording the words of Jesus. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you will remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Seven impactful words, I think. The reminder to us And the reminder to this church at Sardis is that this is how he can use the actions of imperfect people to accomplish his purposes. Actions that flow from a genuine, deeply rooted love relationship with Jesus. Sometimes we talk about doing more and doing better and and how much can we do. And the the point is not how much we can do, but the partner with whom we do it. The senior partner. The all-powerful partner the loving and gracious partner, the forgiving partner, the one who sustains the entirety of the universe, that partner, Jesus. Deeply, deeply, deeply in love with him. According to people who would know better, and I don't know how they know it exactly, but according to people who know better, the sun's surface temperature is 6,000 degrees centigrade. I could use a little bit of those temps today, frankly. The core, however, of the sun is apparently 14 million degrees centigrade. You see what's happening? The closer you get to the core, the warmer it is. Do you see what's happening? Do you hear what Jesus is saying? The closer we are... United to Him, the more deeply we are uh, related to Him, <clears throat> excuse me, and are loving Him. The same is true in our relationship with Jesus and the stuff we do. The closer we get to Him, the hotter it is. Because His presence is what empowers us to do the things that we do. Now, in verse 4, I need to make this note because it's <clears throat> clear even in the church that has been told, hey, you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Even here, verse 4, there are few in Sardis who have not defiled their garments. This is why Jesus never gives up on his capital C church. And so when we escape the performance trap, now again, hear me carefully. Jesus is not saying, hey man, go home, put your feet up on the hassock and don't do anything. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is make sure whatever it is you do is animated by love for him. That whatever it is that we do, whatever purposes we engage in to accomplish those things God has called us to do, whatever those things that we do must be preceded by a loving, nurturing relationship with Jesus. And so when Jesus talks about this remnant at the church in Sardis, he kind of uh, p- piles up these ideas in verse 5. There's, there's three affirmations of what I'm going to call this morning the eternal security of the genuine believer here. Three of them. The first one is in the first part of verse 5. He says that the, the, the true believer in Jesus shall be clothed in white garments in verse 5. This, this is the attire of heaven. When I was a basic training squadron commander, at the time at Lackland Air Force Base, there was this building called the Green Monster. And the Green Monster was really interesting because what happened was brand-new trainees to the Air Force went in one door on one side of the building, in their civilian clothes and their sloppy, floppy hair and all their civilian attire. They went in that one door, and along the way as they walked through that building, A, their hair got cut, B, they got issued uniforms, C, they put those uniforms on, so that when they came out the other door, on the other side of the building, you could tell they were in the Air Force, at least preliminarily in the Air Force, because of how they looked, because they were wearing the uniform that said, hey, I'm a member of the United States Air Force. And here, what Jesus is saying is, this garment that we get is going to be the attire, the attire of heaven. How will we know that Jesus loves us? We're wearing the right uniform. How will we also know that Jesus loves us? It says in verse 5, that Jesus will not blot his name out, our names out, from the book of life. In verse 5, there is this kind of heavenly registration book. Now, I don't know if you've ever made the mistake of using a permanent marker instead of a dry erase marker on a whiteboard. I taught for a school in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts called Newbury College. It's now gone bankrupt and is out of business that had nothing to do with me personally. But one day I walked in and I was using the board. Most of the classrooms in this college had chalk boards. And so I'd come home covered with chalk on my hands all the time. But they had this one classroom that I got to use that had a a whiteboard on the wall. I was very excited. But unfortunately for that class, and for me, I picked up a permanent marker to begin writing on the board. And I realized as I was halfway through a particular word, I'm going, oh my gosh, I think this is permanent marker. One of my really helpful students said, "Uh, Professor, Are you using permanent marker on that board? And I realized I was. And so then, forever after, for every semester I ever taught in that classroom, I'd walk in that classroom, and there were those words permanently inscribed on that whiteboard because I'd used permanent marker. Jesus is here saying, if you have a genuine love relationship with him, Your name has been written in this registration book with permanent marker. And then at the end of verse 5, Jesus says this. He says, the Lord will confess our names before the Father and the angels. That is, we're going to be welcomed by the host of heaven. I love this picture. Every time I do a funeral for somebody who has been a professed and obvious believer in Jesus... Yeah, you're sad about the loss, and we don't minimize that at all. We actually genuinely grieve, and dismissal of grief is stupid. But in the middle of that actual no-kidding grief, there is this picture I always have in my brain of somebody showing up in heaven, and Jesus saying, Father, angels, gather around. Look, look who's here. Look. And there's this giant, party. And Jesus says, hey, come on, let me show you your new room. That's the picture. We get to hear Jesus speak our name. And remember back in chapter 2, verse 17, we realized that Jesus has a name picked out for us that only he knows, that we get to hear in this environment, right? If you have loved ones in your life, if you have loved ones in your life, you likely have pet names for those people or nicknames for those people. For me, for example, with Pastor Laura, it's what a brilliant, beautiful, smart, gorgeous woman she is. But I got to tell you that pet name is a little long to say, so I usually just use her actual name. Laura, or Sweet, or something like that. But you know, right? You have people in your family that are close to you. You have a pet name for them. You you have a nickname for them. And you know it, and they know it. And when you say that name to them, they know that, that you think there's something special in your life. Jesus has a name just like that for you, if you are a believer in him. I can't wait. I don't remember who said, and now I wish I did, so I could properly properly attribute the quote, but somebody I read somewhere said this, when we finally step into heaven, when we finally step into the presence of Jesus, we will wonder why on earth we ever hesitated. So, In order for all that to happen, we need to to do what Jesus says in this this passage at the end. He says, stay tuned, listen to the Spirit in verse 6. Now, I mentioned before that um, I teach in a a seminary program. It's a doctor of ministry program. And sometimes when students get to the end of this program, they have to do, well not sometimes, they all have to do a dissertation of some kind. If you're in a doctoral program, you have to cap it off with a dissertation of some some kind, and occasionally you'll see this when somebody's giving you their resume. They'll have their name, and after their name, they'll have a Ph.D. or D.Min. or D.M.I.S.S. or something E.D.D.E.E.D. Doctor of Education. But right after it, in parentheses, there'll be these three letters A.B. D. And what that means for them is, oh yeah, they did all the coursework, they jumped through all those hoops, they ran all those laps around the track, but they did not finish, because those letters mean all but dissertation. They don't really have the degree. They're, they're mostly there, but they haven't done it yet, because they're A, B, D. Sometimes I think, sometimes I think in the body of Christ, You and I, we are A, B, D. We are always busy doing, but it's all but devotion. We're always busy doing, but we're missing this key ingredient that Jesus is talking to this church about. Devotion to the person of Jesus. Now, last week... I offered up the need that I think we all have to hear God speak through his word on a more regular, purposeful basis. This week, I want to underscore another way of regularly hearing from God, and that is prayer. Can we be purposeful in our Bible intake and in our prayers? Pastored in Woodland Park, Colorado, and one day I was locking up the church building as I was leaving it and got it all locked up and secured, set the alarm, and 10 minutes later, I got a call from the alarm company. It turns out somebody had been in the building that I hadn't seen because I had neglected to look in the prayer room. And when they tried to get out, the alarm went off. Man, let's not neglect to look in the prayer room as we seek to be people who are hungry for the person and presence of Jesus. I don't know if you know the There's just something about that name. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. There's just something about that name. Master, Savior, Jesus, like the fragrance after the rain. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Let all heaven and earth proclaim kings and kingdoms will all pass away. But there's something about that name. There's something about that one named Jesus, saying your name. Well done. Thank you for loving me. Well done. Pray with me this morning.